This is Small Changes, Stark Reality on jasoncharles.net. Check, 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 check. All right, party people. How the hell are you? It's been a minute. Welcome to another installment of Stark Reality. Small change here, Jim, whatever you remember. My guest this time around, Honeychild Coleman, a longtime friend in New York. We met sometime in those fuzzy mid-90s at a loft party in Williamsburg. She's a OG, Afropunk, rude girl, DJ, musician, true original, one of those people that keeps New York, New York, despite the yuppification of this town. Plus, forward-thinking politics and dope fashion. What else do you need, people? Originally from Kentucky, Carolyn, a.k.a. Honeychild, fronts the blues punk outfit, the 1865, on vocals and guitar, also spins records under the name DJ Sugarfree BK, and plays bass and sings in the post-punk trio Bachschleider. <laughs> I don't know if I'm saying that right. Also has uh, played with Mad Professor, Apollo Heights, Death Comic Crew, Burnt Sugar, DJ Olive, uh, Raz, Messonize, Badawi, uh, Classic Project. That's when I think I first heard her back in the mid-90s. And uh, The Slits as well. In this interview, we discuss uh, the black woman's contribution to rock and roll, mixing politics and music, her various projects and the different styles that she sort of uh, takes for each group. Uh, general stereotypes on black people and the people kind of pushing beyond those parameters. Gatekeepers and snobs in underground scenes. Meeting Ari up from the slits and ending up going on touring with her. How her DJing style has evolved. And she gives us a nice uh, mix of local and newer underground punk sounds. This was recorded a bit ago, uh, January 21st, 2022. Sorry for the delay. I moved. It's been a pain, people, but we're all still here. And enjoy this interview with one of my favorite people, Honeychild Coleman. Oh, okay. Um, because I, I work for it's Showtime for the street dance nonprofit, so oh, right, I, right. I'm accidentally in that that uh, Zoom. All right. All right. Here so, we go. Take two. Even though you know you people don't know that, but uh, here we are with Honeychild Coleman. Thanks for uh, coming down and uh, talking to us. Yeah, I'm psyched. You know, virtually, of course. You know, since uh, the the fun stuff rages on here, right? Mm-hmm. That worldwide pandemic, we just can't get enough of it. Um. Anyways, uh, you had you still just seem to keep you've been kept very active during this, which is good. You've been, you're in like how many bands are you in at the moment? Um, six. If I include my, <laughs> if I include my solo project, it's officially six bands. But you know, it's it's uh, thankfully not everyone is doing things at the same time, so. It's sustainable in an odd 
I mean, it does make sense, though, because you have a lot of different uh, musical styles and influences, so you get to kind of, like, work out different uh, things in different bands, I assume. Yeah, that's how I feel about it. It's like my feelings are never hurt if something, if an idea is not right for a certain project. I know I'll use the idea. It's just a matter of having an outlet for it. So I feel like I have six creative audio outlets that I can use. Yeah, you know. it's almost like DJing. Like even if you like certain records, yeah, there's it is. certain nights it is or like certain DJing. times of the evening that you know you're not going to play it. So if you're in a certain band, maybe if you have certain musical ideas, it wouldn't necessarily work, or it would work, and right. that's why you would you would try to do something with that with a certain band you were playing with. True, true. Different moods, different moods. Um, yeah. But that's that's cool, and uh, I I was we were talking. Uh, I was trying to figure out when we met. Uh, my guess is because I remember playing like the Bedouin Sound Clash, which of course you know you and uh, Raz Badawi did, which, which came out in what like ninety five. When did that album come out? That album came out in ninety six, I believe. Um, I'm terrible with fact checking, but uh, we. I met you before that. Yeah, no, I know we definitely we met yeah. before that. It's like 94 or 95, yeah. probably like one of all yeah. those parties or something. Yeah, no, I remember going to, I had a friend who moved to um, Williamsburg probably during the second wave of kind of artists coming here around like 93, 94. And we went to some loft party and I remember you were the DJ. And I was like, wow, this DJ is really good. Like, we weren't even invited to the party. Like, somehow we just stumbled in. And then I would see you at parties later, and I'd be like, that's that guy I saw at the first Williamsburg party I ever went to. Oh, that's So that hilarious. was my introduction to you. <laughs> like, I, I, it was probably an art opening, or I don't even know. But, like, I just remember, like, you were DJing, and we were just, like, all started dancing. So it was, it that was, was my introduction to you. Well, cheers to that. I can't even remember that party, but it's like, that's the thing about Williamsburg back then. It was kind of raw. There wasn't even that many sort of businesses. So it was just a lot of uh, warehouse parties at that point, you know. Totally, totally. But, uh, you know, like I said, you've done a lot of different musical styles. And, you know, you kind of, you know, you have a, you know, a very interesting background that I know you've talked about, interviewed about, but uh, and we're featured in the. Uh, was it the Afropunk documentary, which I just realized is going way back to like 2003 when that came out. But uh, that James Spooner, I think. Yeah. Was right. Yeah. He filmed it between like 2000, end of 2001. Like he was definitely filming before 9-11. So, yeah, that. Um, I mean, around the time when he was doing Afropunk, that was like for me, um I was still doing electronic music, but I was really more focused on live projects and working with more rock oriented bands. Like I know I was, I was singing with this band called Audio Dyslexia then. And uh, we were recording a lot. And then I still had my solo band as well. Um, but yeah, that, that film is such a postcard to what was happening club wise in the city as well when we had a lot more live smaller um size music venues specifically in the east village which as you know isn't really the case anymore 
Yeah, um, it's and tricky. Just the different communities. Yeah. Well, it's just that I think what happens is the rents go amok, and then you can't really price point wise have someone that might be kind of edgy or want to take a chance and have an idea because it just costs too much money. So they have to put something together that they think is going to make money, which doesn't always kind of like lead to the best or, you know, edgy art, (laughs) you know, kind of it tends to just be like, okay, more of the same because they're all trying to get the same people that they think they have money as opposed to just people who open up music spaces. But that's not necessarily the way to become a millionaire <laughs> you know if you want to open right. up an underground music venue but the thing that's kind of funny is usually those are the places that people talk about years even after they close you know true true and people also forget like this is peak giuliani era and some of our beloved venues lost their license due to this like <laughs> ridiculous cabaret law which he revitalized so you know, like a smaller size venue could never keep up with the signs that were being thrown at them. You know, if too many people were dancing in a club or the new yuppie neighbors complain about the noise volume when that club is the reason they moved to the cool neighborhood. So a lot of that was going on. Um, yeah, I mean, I think know, like Coney Island, people, yeah, like Coney Island High, you know, I think was getting all these noise complaints. And I always like thought of that. And again, I, I sort of moved the same sort of wave that I think you came around the same time. I moved here in 93. And like, uh, so I just, even though I wasn't here in the 70s or 80s, you know, St. Mark's still had that whole kind of like, you know, it's like the sort of trash and vaudeville kind of punk shops and cheap food shops and whatever and you know the smoke shops and whatever and so you know it's like for people to move to saint mark's between second and third and complain about the noise it's like you know what block you move to exactly that's like moving to bedford avenue and being like oh i can't stand all the activity here i mean it's just like (laughs) live in the upper east side you know I hear yeah, like York yeah. Street is really quiet at night. You know, it's like fucking a <laughs> man. It's ridiculous. Yeah, but that's kind. Of, yeah, that kind of stuff sort of like destroys the city because then, you know, yeah, Giuliani. I mean, people. I think, you know, it's just funny when you've lived through it. You just think people know these things, but uh, yeah, in the late nineties, uh, Giuliani revitalized these cabaret laws that I think dated back pre-prohibition and were very racist yep. in nature too. I think. A lot of it was written to kind of keep white people from going up to jazz clubs in Harlem and to kind of regulate mm-hmm. jazz musicians, you know. And then, you know, and again, revitalized and also kind of a racist way to just clamp down on clubs they didn't like and find them for dancing. So you had to have this yeah. license to have dancing. And if you didn't if you didn't have that license, you, you know, legally couldn't have dancing in your club. So it was literally like... You know, in the late 90s, DJing at various places in the East Village and Lower East Side and feeling like I'm in some weird episode of Footloose, <laughs> you know, like the cops, <laughs> the cops literally coming in at like one yep. thirty in the morning, like prime time with all their flashlights and, you know, basically just breaking up the vibe. Like even if they don't write any tickets, they're still costing these places thousands of dollars because who's going to hang out in a club with 15 cops just wandering around? Right. It's not why you right. came to, you know, to the venue. I want to hang out with a bunch of cops up my ass, you know. So, anyway, yeah, it yeah. was it's a it crazy was really time. Uh, yeah, strange time. So, um, you know, I don't want to go off on the 
people should have asked a New Yorker about Giuliana boat, Giuliani boat. But um, <laughs> no, but <laughs> I mean, it, kinda, of... it, it continues, though, because obviously, yeah. you know, your band, the 1865, which you guys have been playing together, what, since uh, 2017? Yeah, that's when we formed 2017. Um, but Sasha and I had worked on music before. Uh, I want to say we were kind of uh, jamming a bit around 2007 2008 um and then you know as you know he's also a very busy man filmmaker producer yeah writer, he's kind of part of the artist. ego trip posse right yeah yeah and also uh creative directing for mass appeal um a multitude of films including most recently the bitching story of rick james great great um, no his stuff is amazing yeah. no those guys uh, yeah. they always do amazing work so uh, yeah so he's been working in in you know he's he was a journalist for a long time but he's also playing in hardcore bands at the same time and producing film and then i was working overseas a lot so it got to a point where we would just randomly run into each other all the time at, on 14th street just randomly passing like in the subway like i'm going downtown he's going uptown hey hey how are you doing cool cool and then we really kind of reunited at the secret show the bad brains did at the okay player gallery when it, it was the first show the bad brains did after hr and dr no had both had surgery and it was also an exhibit of um daryl jennifer's paintings which i didn't know he was a painter before that so pretty much every punk i knew was at that show and of course sasha was there i think chuck treese was there too floating around in the crowd and we kind of saw each other at that show and then a month or two later, um, I got the call about this project and did I want to be down, which of course I said yes. So that's kind of how that came into fruition. So that's nice because, uh, I mean, I think, I forget how you guys describe yourselves, but obviously Bad Brains is is somewhat in there. So it's kind of nice that obviously there's just such an, an influential influential band but then you know it's almost like seeing them again even after knowing their music they're like yeah it's never too late let's just do a band now <laughs> you know yeah of course of course and also just you know the political climate we're living in and music is a great vehicle to speak about things um as they happen in real time so that was really uh that's what sucked me in because i love weaving politics into my art it definitely is inspiring and it it feels empowering to be able to tell those stories on a larger scale, just outside of my little circle of friends. So, yeah, and not a lot of people are down to use politics in a creative way. I feel like there's the yay team and the I don't do politics team. Um, so it's an, I, I feel really privileged and thankful to work with artists that do. Yeah, I mean, I feel like as opposed to maybe being in a band where they're like, hey, we just want to rock out or whatever, you know, this is, this is as we were talking about before, about like sort of finding the different groups that you're playing with to do different kinds of things. This is a band that you can explore the politics and music, you know, kind of weave True. them together. Yeah, I mean, again, I'm, I, I feel very fortunate that all the projects I'm in now are they have some political content <laughs> all in different levels, but, uh, but yeah, nothing's worse than even if the band isn't specifically about politics, working with people that closely who not only don't want to talk about it, even in a conversation level, they don't understand your purpose in it or have any empathy. And that is pretty common. I think, especially in rock music, it's 
it's changing a bit, but I could tell you horror stories. Yeah, I'm sure. No, I mean, it's, I mean, I think even, oh, why do you want to, yeah. Even, even an artist, artistry in general, you know, I feel like people can maybe look at the art that they do and it's like they're, they're kind of creating an escape for themselves or, you know, some sort of inspiration or relaxing or for other people. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I feel like, you know, just coming, especially living in, you know, say the West, you know, and being white and being a male, saying that you're not political, it kind of, I don't know, there's definitely some privilege in that. It's like, it's easy for someone like me to say I'm not political, you know, because Mm -hmm. the, the world is definitely structured towards your favor. So why would you necessarily have a beef with it? But if it's a system right. that's, uh, you know, actively, you know, killing people that look like you and, you know, oppressing them and or even, you know, just what goes on in this world, it's harder to ignore, you know. So I feel like it ignoring is. it in a way, it's kind of it's not the best look, to be honest. Well, know? now it's I, I understand, you know, like climate and language and access to information changes as as time goes on, as we get older, as we all get more exposed. So the language we have to talk about it being problematic is still new for a lot of people. And there was a moment when uh, you chose not to be political in order to uh, be safe or feel safe. Like you didn't want to offend people or make waves or draw attention to yourself. That's like common knowledge, you know, like it happens in commercial situations, whatever. But now if people choose it, that's a statement unto itself. And right now, uh, I don't know. I mean, I hate to put too much emphasis on social media because a lot of people I know don't use it. Like my bandmate Sasha is not on social media and I told him don't start. (laughs) But I mean, it's a wormhole. people choose... Yeah, if people choose not to have any political opinion or stance right now, that is such a massive statement that I feel that is a political statement. You know, it's a huge political statement. It's a political statement. It's no longer, it's no longer considered passive or safe, and we need to make those people uncomfortable as uncomfortable as possible. Yeah, I mean, um, if, like Switzerland is like neutral in World, World War II. What is that? But complicity, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So it's just so. like, it's kind of a bullshit stance, you know? And and yeah, it's like you kind of, because the thing is, I think with a lot of art too, it's like, where do you think all this stuff comes from? It doesn't come from some fascist background. You know, it comes right. from creativity and openness and like, you know, people kind of being open and working together. This is where all these music genres kind of came out of. And a, and a lot of them, of course, came out of what? <laughs> Black, African-American music scenes, you know? So that's another right. thing about rock, too, that's good in terms of kind of like, I think some of the projects you were involved in, what was it, like the Sisters? Oh, the Sister Girls. The, the Sister Girls. Uh, well, yeah, that uh, was never a band, even though people think it was because they see a flyer with, heads on it um it's a collective collective right and and black rock um, coalition of course and the black rock coalition is a huge collective and community and organization specifically advocating for equality and fairness um with black musicians performing touring dealing with venues etc um which is great and it's incredible that they've 
are still going. I mean, I think they started in like 83 or 85. Um, I'm a proud member. It took me a while to join, um, but I've been a fan from afar for many years and they've been incredible. And they're not, I think when people see black, I don't know how deeply I want to go with this, but you know, you'll see like Black Rock Coalition, Punk Black, uh, any organization focusing on black artists. I think someone who is not open-minded sees that as exclusive or exclusionary. And that's not the purpose at all. It's kind of like the same attitude people have toward critical race theory. Like, oh, you're going to learn this history and learn about why this exists and why it's necessary. It's not about you, but it's necessarily not a negative thing that it's not about you. And I mean, one we could, have a long one could argue go. that it actually yeah. is important that it's not about you. Give if given like yes. the slant of how we've been taught about things, actually has been about True. this kind of white male Western perspective. So. But it's not white centered. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's created to. Well, I can, I can only speak for the projects I'm in. Yeah, of course. Like, not everything black is created to vilify white people. So I mean, it's fine. And my, from have, my perspective as a white person, it, it would be fine if it was. <laughs> yeah, and it can be. I mean, no, there I mean, are things fine. that are, sure. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is these platforms and these organizations have not lost the need to exist just because some things have become more accessible or, you know, more visible. Like the need is still there because the reactions are getting stronger and stronger, which I'm just still like, I don't want to say I live under a rock or I'm in denial, but some of people's reactions to me, I'm like, I can't believe we're still here. I can't believe this is still an issue. I can't believe that, oh, but there's a new generation of people who don't know the history of anything. So they're just now reacting now. So that's what we're all dealing with. That's and wild. It's super wild. Like a colleague of mine, Marine Mayan, just wrote a book last year called Black Diamond Queens, specifically about Black women's contribution to rock and roll. And a lot of the stories in this book from LaBelle to, um, I won't say the Ronettes, but um, to like the Crystals or Aretha Franklin or any of the women in the book, like a lot of the ways they talk about what they dealt with in the industry and as Black women still exists. It's just people don't know the history, so history repeats itself. So and, and That's I where think we are. part of the and reason that people don't know the history is that so history will keep repeating itself. That's exactly why exactly. it's about trying to put this kind of counter narrative of like, no, this is what's happened, what is still happening so that you can right. have an awareness to kind of like move into, you know, a, a sort of a better world, you know? Yeah. But, so, yeah. Yeah. Um... And and I think, you know, like just I was checking some of your interviews and stuff, and I think something that comes up that also just really defines you is that there is no just one way to be a black person or a black woman, you know, in terms of even just your style and your music kind of background and personal style. You know, I think that's something that, again, kind of gets flattened in society. You know, I think you're... Uh, talking i forget it was like the checkerboard kids it was a good interview but you were talking about how oh, like thanks. on tv and stuff like you know you have these two different kinds of black people like say you know 
the bling or the kind of like more hood. So it, it doesn't really like, where are the black punks, you know, <laughs> or the black skinheads, right. like, or where are all these kind of counterculture scenes where there is black people and there may not be tons of them, you know, but that's the whole point is that it, people should be open to be able to be whoever they are and not have society say, oh, you don't belong here or whatever, you know. Right. And, you know, like, I mean, you know, this from just existing in different sub scenes yourself, there's always going to be gatekeepers and snobbery <laughs> in whatever scene you decide to join. Yeah. Um, which is why personally, I, yeah, like I never, if people say, oh, what were you like in high school? Were you a punk? I was like, there were no punks for me to be punk with. There was no scene. I was just me. So whenever I get introduced to a quote unquote scene, something feels a little limited about it to me if there's like a large group of people who only like one thing and only dress one way and only listen to one kind of music like that's the most frightening thing to me personally in the world so i will never claim affinity to one scene of anything right because the things that i love and seek and the things that inspire me there's just too many ways it could go um but also i feel like within all the scenes even whatever the black scene whoever there's always going to be a gatekeeper saying well you're not really punk well, you're not really this, you're not really that. And I think if you're a young person who doesn't really know themselves, that can be pretty devastating <laughs> because you're like, well, I found my tribe, but I'm not cool enough for them. So, yeah, there's a lot of like um, egos within these kind of yeah, it's and, just, and art I just, in general. You know, I don't want to. I, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm, I'm very, very tired of egos at this point in my life. You know, I'm just like, I'm over it. I, I really don't yeah. care. You know what I mean? I, I, mean, I really I'm, respect people that are just on the level. You know, if people make great art, but they're a dick, then it kind of like, it, it knocks it a little bit for me, to be honest, if I meet sure. them. It'd almost be better if I didn't meet them. <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, I understand that. I guess what I'm trying to say is, um, because I do talk a lot about how there are different ways to be black. And every day that I wake up, I'm black, no matter how how my hair looks or what bands I like. I'm still a black person being me. And that's not discussed enough because of, you know, just even outside of black culture, as Americans, whatever, you're expected to fit in some kind of box. And to not care about the box is super empowering. Yeah, it, it really, really is. is. No, I agree. I agree. You have to, and it, it's tricky, but I mean, you kind of just stand your ground, then maybe people are sitting back trying to figure out, maybe you might get the occasional troll shit here and there, but, uh, you know, you're just able to just be like, you know, I'm going to just explore what I like and not what, you know, I, sh I should be liking or not liking. You right, know? right. So, yeah, um, I think I've lost the plot. No, no, it's all good. No, because I also, you were also doing like that kind of like, I, I just, I didn't realize this either until I was like uh, going through some of these interviews. You were kind of doing like this, um, anti, the sort of anti-folk scene that was happening in the 90s or what was that called exactly? It was almost like a punk rock oh. folk scene. Yeah, the, when I got back to New York, because I've been in living, I've been living in uh, the Bay Area for about three and a half years. Um the anti-folk scene was anti -folk pretty big. Anti-folk scene, like, right, right. Yeah, like Beck had just kind of blown up and he, I think he had done some stuff at Sidewalk Cafe. So Sidewalk Cafe all of a sudden became like the place to be. They like, had like a weekly party for do. a year, right? right? Yeah, they had, like, the jam every yes, Monday I was night. Good, I was going to totally. mention Sidewalk Cafe, exactly. Yeah, so when I got here, uh, 
it's not that I set out to be an acoustic artist. I just never had a band before. And in the Bay Area, I had a hard time doing gigs outside of the folk scene because it was more conservative. Like you would go to a venue and they're like, whoa, do you have a band? You know, okay, we're not really booking that kind of music. And they didn't really know what it was. They just immediately shut it down. <laughs> so I was like, but I play guitar and I have a drum machine. Can I? And so like I got here and saw that people were a little bit more open-minded. And I did used to play at Sidewalk. Uh, at one point before I met other people to form a band with, I was probably doing open mics like four nights a week. Oh, wow. Easily. That's that's wild. And I was, um, yeah, it was super crazy because I'm, I'm looking through my archives now and I'm like, wow, I did so many open mics. I was doing Wetlands, Sidewalk Cafe, Ludlow Cafe. Um, I never did anything at Eurekan, but there was another scene on St. Mark's that my friend Roni, Eve's Roni, used to do um, upstairs from uh, the Japanese punk store that's there now. Like I was doing that. And then through the Wetlands crew, I got to do the Howl Fest at Tompkins Square. So literally, I was just at least three to four nights a week. That's all I did was open mics. So I was one, practicing, and two, uh, looking to meet other musicians. So that's how I got into the anti-folk scene. But because I had performed at Sidewalk, one night, um, Sarah Valentine was there. And she invited me to do really one of the first Riot Girl shows I'd ever heard of. And it was at the gas station. Ah, uh, yes, and the, gas the gas station. Yeah. So from the from that show, I got invited to do uh, something else in the same, um, she called it the Pussy, Fierce Pussy Festival, I think. Um, Vulvapalooza, that's what it was called. So from that Vulvapalooza show, I got invited to do something at ABC No Rio. So this was, I got into the back door of the punk venues through the anti-folk scene. <laughs> and from there, um, I, there was a weird crossover with like that Volvo Palooza show I did at ABC No Rio. DJ Olive was in the audience because Chibamato were there because he also worked with Yuka Honda in another band. And when he saw me singing and doing stuff with Drum Machine, he's like, oh, I do a Sunday night. Um, it wasn't really called Drum and Bass yet. He's like, I do the Sunday night party. Um, and I already knew he DJed because I'd seen him do the molecular thing at gas station. So I knew who he was. It's like, do you want to come and sing at this thing? And I'm like, I moved back to New York to meet DJs that want to work with me. This is exactly why I'm here. Didn't think I was going to meet a DJ at a punk club, but this is awesome. So that's literally like how I got into all of those different pockets. Um, and everybody was open. Like no one was saying, oh, you can't play guitar. You can't play drum machine. You don't have a band. Like literally it was very welcoming and very open-minded. Yeah, I think that really, really makes a difference is that, you know, think about that. You know, you're kind of like you're moving here. You're just doing open mics, so you don't really know people. But then you start meeting people, playing on different like those those venues are legendary, like ABC No Rio and Gas Station. And they were just funky and you would just meet amazing yeah. people. I mean, Gas Station was one of the first places I DJed in New York. I did that Rocksteady Station party that some of the people from the Slackers I used to go to that party. Yeah. So that's so crazy. Yeah. yeah. And it was amazing. It was like, you know, my intro DJing, you know, I had DJed on the radio, but hadn't really DJed out like, you know, out that much at all. It was probably my like early gigs. And I'm like DJing like, 
you know, ska and rock steady till six in the morning in <laughs> underground venue. It was like, I kind of look back on that and like, wow, that was amazing. I was able to, to play that like that early on, yeah. like, because it's hard to even play those parties now, you know, to get those yeah, parties going nuts. on now. So, but yeah, but uh, that's the thing though. It's, it was a different time. Things were cheaper. So you could have those kind of underground venues and then you make those connections. And yeah, I mean, I remember, going to some of those early Williamsburg warehouse parties that all of us throwing, like there'd be like an inflatable room. Like, you know, you'd yep. walk into a bubble and they'd be playing weird ambient stuff and they'd have inflatable furniture yep. or just, you know, all of us, uh, he's a man. Yeah. I didn't realize you guys did a record together. See, I I'm sleeping on you. You really put out a lot of stuff. I got to keep up with you. <laughs> <laughs> when did um, you guys do that? Well, uh, after we started, after I started singing with Olive and Loop, who is Rich, who is yeah, yeah, Loop, exactly. Um, we were doing this party. I don't remember the name of that bar to save my life. It was on like East Eleventh Street, close to Avenue C. So that party moved to another kind of squattish space that rumor has it used to be the squat of the butthole surfers on 6th street near avenue b oh, okay and was that, that other bar party... was that bar on 11th between b and c yeah was that the st bar maybe yeah st bar you're oh, right that was one of the first Thank places you. i dj'd in new york that's so funny that was was that yeah, amoeba so... was that like a sunday thing it was a Sunday party, and um, yeah, that was my was roommate was so involved hard. with that party. Yeah, he just that party he was just super passed fun. a couple years ago, but uh, this uh, oh, Tom so Stir, yeah, mm. no, he was like an old roommate of mine, but he was friends with Olive and those guys. Yeah, I think the party okay. was called Amoeba, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Um. Yeah, I don't remember the name of the party because I only performed with them there a few times. But then, um, you know, at this point in the crew was also DJ Spooky and between Spooky Olive Dr. Israel was in the crew Yeah, Dr. Israel um, nice who else was there and then it was like this woman Hannah was one of the vocalists and then I got invited in too and they moved the party to this other space it was still on a Sunday night um, and it was at the, the space on 6th Street for years um, sometimes they would do one-offs like Save the Robots but basically like I really honed my MC vocal skills freestyling with these guys every week. Wow, I and had no idea. That's wild. Yeah, before we made the record, like we had been performing together, I want to say this was like 94, uh, for about a year and a half before we made that record. And while that party was happening, other parties started to go on, like Sound Lab in David Linton's space down on Walker Street. Um, and then they would do one off bigger parties, you know, and then Liquid Sky open and then it was a wrap, but like in a wrap in a good way, like just, you know, like all of our other friends who were drum and bass DJs like Delmar and Cassine and my roommate Adam and just different people came in the mix. But um, this Sunday party was super, it was really like a community hangout in a similar way that Phenomena was at Tonic. You know, you saw you would just go there every week because you knew you'd see your friends, you knew you would love the music, you'd dance. It wasn't a huge, crazy club with the large door fee i think it was two dollars to get in <laughs> you know like at the yeah most, i miss three. i miss tonic subtonic uh a spot on the lower east side that uh really just had a lot of great music both live music and some really uh forward dj nights 
And the basement, yeah, the basement so. was all those um, wine casts that they kind of had cut exactly. open. So they, it was almost like you had these kind of like weird private booths and then like a dance floor. And uh, totally, totally. It was super, yeah, it was a great space. Um, a lot of good parties there. But yes, because I think you just posted on uh, Instagram like an old picture of you playing it, Phenomena, right? Yeah, because I saw it. It came up in my Facebook memories because um, I think Gregor took the photos, DJ Olive. So I saved it and just kind of. Yeah, it was it Olive little, but, and um, um, Toshio, who I think is he's yep. in Japan. He's back in Japan, right? Yeah, Toshio's back in Japan. But he was like a um, buyer at A1 Records and just an insane record head. Totally. And between both yep. those guys, man, Toshio would be like especially how because he, he's like a pretty hardcore record collector with like you know whatever all the things people are looking for funk, soul, hip hop, etc., jazz. But he also just is into just completely out there stuff. And so of course, being at mm. the helm of the record, you know the uh the record store he would like pull stuff just from i remember he was playing this record it's so funny the random things you remember in your life but i remember toshio was playing this record of phenomena and it was just totally haunting and eerie and crazy sounding and i was like you know usually you don't want to like jock people especially if you've known them for a while like what's this record what's it but i was like no i have to ask him sort of pre-shazam yeah. you know and it mm -hmm. was like this crazy record. It was like these hippies sitting on a lawn eating uh, like, you know, some lunch. looks like, you know, early 70s. And then there's this gigantic harp that's like 40 feet tall behind them, you know? <laughs> <laughs> wow. And literally what they did is they built the harp on top of this windy hill. And then the wind was playing the harp. And then they're sitting there eating wow. their lunch, of course, like hippies while their albums are being recorded. And it just sounded so <laughs> crazy. And I'm like, fucking Toshio, man. This guy always comes up with some records that, how does this even exist, you know? Right. I didn't even know about this shit. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, those, that's the thing about New York. I don't know. I miss it a little bit. I know people get like, oh, it's different. But it's just, I don't know. You know, I'm sure there's obviously still lots of underground things going on. Maybe I need to get out more. But uh, it did seem like... Uh, there's just a lot of venues really just doing really out there stuff, you know, or at least a few. Yeah. I mean, the, also the, the biggest difference too, is everything was still kind of concentrated in Manhattan. So you have to really look a little bit harder now to find where things are. Yeah. Um, I call it like and... reverse white flight. It's like, you know, all the mm -hmm. people have now the sons and daughters of all the people who moved to the burbs have moved back to the city. And so now we're forced to throw parties in the suburbs. You know, it seems like we go farther and farther out into Ridgewood or, you know, whatever. Exactly. It's kind of funny. Where the space is. Yeah. Where the spaces are and stuff. Yeah. Um, but so yeah. yeah, we made that record in 96. Um, we actually recorded it, or at least I recorded my parts um, during a festival that Howard and Beth from, sound lab had produced in san francisco and for me like you know it's 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 so corny and it's such a nerdy thing but i just remember because it was one of my few trips back since i moved here so i'm like oh wow i'm like back in my hometown even though i'm not from berkeley and like my crew from new york is here we're going record shopping together and i like met everybody and like hey guys this is where we go to have lunch and then i just remember like being in amoeba for hours and everyone's digging through crates and then we did the festival and um, I think during that same festival, there was a DJ competition 
between the executioners and the scratch pickles. Oh, wow. Amazing. Yeah. No, that's yeah. Amazing. It was so sick. So for me, I was like having a New York experience in San Francisco. So it was like this weird oxymoron, but it was so incredible. And um, we went, I went to the studio with Nacho, who does music, but he also uh, had a big hand in the projections that we used and all of those inflatables and everything. So oh, word. everybody from, we, yeah, it was like Nacho, Rich, and um, Gregor. And we were in the studio with Not Human. And... I did my vocals and then we went to the venue to do the gig and it was like a big party. It was great. Um, and then from that session, they did two more albums that they were able to pull. Um, I hate to use content, but they were able to pull stems from that session of me for the other two records as well. So nice. I appear on the other two records, but the first one is the one where it's the most distinct, where it really, for me, feels like, okay, these are songs that we did because we also played those things together live. And now that you're kind of like, I mean, you know, with like 1865 and some of the other projects, I didn't realize what is that, um, that kind of like sort of uh, ska, it's almost like two tone type project you have. Heaven's oh, C. Heaven's B. Yeah. Heaven's B. Heaven's B. Yeah. And it sounds like it's like a whole like, mishmash of a lot of you know new york uh, ska people going back like the boilers new yeah. york citizens you know that kind of like takes me legendary. back to my to my youth you know totally totally yeah because it's dania from agent 99 which you know later became the slackers um it is mark right we also had olivier um from the boilers who, oh my God, his voice is so beautiful. I love, love, we love, love the, him I mean, so it's funny. We um, grew up in the West Coast, total ska heads, and uh, we loved the Boilers. We were yeah. like, you know, we had a whole pocket of people where we bought their record when it came out and all that stuff. We were big Boilers fans and New York citizens. We saw the New York citizens. Yeah, I saw um, the New York citizens Patrick like one of their few tours, though. I think they ended up like, uh, like a third of the way into their set, like getting into it with some local knucklehead skinheads. And then there was a fight and it was the end of the show. So I'm like, man, I got ripped oh, off. Wow. I went, <laughs> you oh, were like, no. never saw the boilers. <laughs> Finally going to see the New York oh, citizens. No. And I saw about like 25 minutes of their set, but whatever. It was oh, funny. It's always ruining the show. I know, you know, Ridiculous. so crazy. <laughs> um, Patrick from the boilers um, is a visual artist and he actually designed our album cover. Oh, okay. Word. So that's like, royalty as well and then marco and roger from bigger thomas who i love um and yeah, they another like really old fun... school new york ska band right totally yeah yeah then they have a really fun kind of um ska cover tribute band called rude boy george and um did i see you at that selector show at the knitting factory were you there no like... I, I i missed them i interviewed uh Pauline Black when I was uh, 19 in college I saw him oh wow back then. <laughs> that's awesome yeah it's pretty um, pretty classic so I've seen the selector a few times but uh I didn't see them recently yeah um I how did I end up meeting those guys but another kind of pioneering for, artist you know yeah. Pauline Black she's kind of a badass for sure oh she's amazing I love her book as well Oh, it's I haven't so checked her, incredible. but I need to read it. Okay, word. Yeah, you yeah. No, I remember it. interviewing her. She had a lot of sass. She was hilarious. I remember being very mm -hmm. funny. And she 
you know, despite the, you know, the waves of third, fourth, whatever wave of ska we're on now, she never stopped working. She's kept herself so active creatively, which is really inspiring. Yeah, I know. And another person that obviously uh, Ari up from the slits, because you got to play with the slits Mm -hmm. for a while. Yeah. So that must have been quite a, you know, like playing with your heroes in a way. That must be kind of awesome. You know, um, my Ari story is pretty insane. Um, I met Ari when I lived in New York before, like in the late 80s. And I didn't know who she was because I knew who the slits were, but (laughs) the only photo I'd ever seen of them was the cut album cover where they're all covered in mud. So (laughs) I remember her. Yeah. And this is real. Like I was punk rock and didn't have a TV and didn't, I never saw any slits videos. I didn't see them in magazines because at this point, you know, that was kind of done. So my memories of Ari were, she's this German Jamaican lady with dreadlocks down to her knees who hangs out in the East village with her twin sons who also have dreads. And like, I would see her at parties and she was, I was doing, um, this is so crazy. So if it's too long, let me know, but um, no, 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 we have time. (laughs) There's no time limit. Yeah. Yeah. So I worked at canal Jean and I met this woman who was a seamstress and she had her own like kind of small um, shop where she was doing tailoring and doing like, almost couture type stuff. And I ended up being her assistant. So I was helping her sew. And her husband owned a recording studio and Ari knew her husband. So we had a fashion show at Marianne's, you know, the Mexican space right, on right. Um, 2nd Ave and yep. 5th. We had a fashion show at Marianne's. That's hilarious. Of, <laughs> of the designs that this woman did to make. Yeah, it's all hilarious. And I mean, I like used to sleep in the shop if like I'd stayed out too late because there's no way I was going to take the train home at night because it was just nuts so i basically lived on this block and ari came to the fashion show like that was when i first met her and i was like who is this woman with you know and also then like white women didn't really have dreads in america so that was also shocking and i was like she's amazing and then she's got these two kids and they're dancing around her and she's so intense but i never saw her again after that night that was in like 88 maybe Fast forward to, uh, I want to say the summer of 2007. I'm with Apollo Heights. We're at PS1. We're about to play. We're backstage. And Q-Max from the Slackers and the Bandroids comes in because he's our friend. Yeah, that's, that, was the guy, that was one of the guys who was doing Rocksteady Station. It was right. Q Right, so Q-Max comes else. backstage and he brings Ari with him. And I'm like, yo, I know her from the 80s. Still not knowing that it's Ari from the Slits. I just know like, That's oh, hilarious. there's that woman I met at the party. And Q-Max is like, oh, my friend Ari wants to meet you. And I'm like, Ari? He's like, you know, from the Slits. And I'm like, what? <laughs> so then, you know, I meet her. We talk for like a few minutes. Think nothing of it. Fast forward again to my birthday in 2010. And I log into Facebook at like six in the morning. And I have a message from Dania from Agent 99 and Heavens B saying, do you want to go on tour with the slits? And I'm like half awake and I read it and I'm like, yo, ah, oh, I can't do it. My band's not ready. Cause I'm assuming she wants like my band to open for the slits. So then I read it and I really open. She goes, no, 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 no. She needs a guitarist. And she saw you play at PS one and she remembered that you play guitar. So 
she called me and asked me to find you. And she does, she's not on social media. She doesn't do email. She doesn't have an answering machine. She's super old school. So you just got to call her and, and talk to her. And I'm like, what? <laughs> so I'm like, okay, I'll give her a call. And so, yeah, I ended up uh, going to her house to audition. I had four days to learn some songs. And, um, and then we became friends, basically, because I was hanging out with her all the time, trying to learn all the music and just talking. And that's how I ended up playing with Slits. Amazing. Yeah, and I kept thinking, I kept forgetting you were in Apollo Heights, too. You really just, I guess that's the thing with bands. It's just, uh, it's madness. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, you, I think again, like I wasn't the kid who got the guitar for Christmas when I was 15. Like a lot of people, like it's such a cliche, but so for me, like most of the people I ended up playing music with, we had a friendship first. It's pretty rare that I'll just start a huge project with a stranger. Like it hasn't really happened for me so much. Um, and I knew Danny and Daniel, um, I met them around the time when I first met you, like 93, 94, because I was working in Soho at Zubog, the shoe store, and everybody and their mother used to come in there, like so many people between that and like playing the subway. I want to say most of the friends I have, I met <laughs> that came into that store or like just met at a party. Yes. And oh. so I was a big fan. I was reading about uh, Apollo Heights when I was still in California. I mean, like, oh, there's a black shoe gaze band. And they work with the Cocteau Twins. I need to know them, you know, but I never thought I'd meet them in real life. I just thought like, oh, cool. Like when I get to New York, I'm definitely going to check this band out. And then um, Danny came in with like his posse, I think with Marvin, the drummer and like a couple other dudes who were just like in the crew. And he's like, oh, my band's playing at CBGB's tonight. You should come to the show. And for some reason, I didn't know they were twins at this point. And uh I was like, cool, I'll come. So I go to CBGB's. I'm standing outside, you know, waiting for somebody to walk me in. And Daniel comes out. And I'm like, okay, cool. And I'm he doesn't even like look at me. So I'm like, oh, this is like a weird situation. Like this guy is totally dissing me after he invited me <laughs> to the show. So then I felt really so stupid. <laughs> it was oh, so, that's it was so messed up. I'm like, yeah, I'm here. And it's he literally classic. like walked it's around. Like, Who the fuck are you? I never met <laughs> he you. He doesn't know me. He never That's met like some me weird David Lynch film. <laughs> and he's like walked back in, and so I left. So months later, oh, I meet man. them again, and I'm like, oh, they're twins. They're like semi-identical. Like if you don't see them together, you don't realize they're not completely identical. So I was like, oh my god, I feel so stupid. Like I should have just said, hey, your brother invited me because I literally did not know they were twins. I only met one of them. So, so funny. That's after hilarious. that, like we became friends. It was super hilarious. He's like, oh, that's my brother. Like it happens to him all the time. So yeah, we became friends. I started going to all their shows. I knew their music by heart. Like, so when they asked me to play with them, uh, I was able to, cause I, I don't read music at all. Like that's like a whole other story. So I had to learn everything, but I play by ear, but because I'd seen them so many times, I really, really knew the music, which is kind of insane. It's kind of like, like the slits. I'm not going to lie. I had to really learn. I only knew like a couple of songs out of 15. Apollo Heights, I knew all their songs. So joining that band was, uh, I, it, I won't say it was easy because it was very intense. And I definitely had to polish up my playing style. It, my playing style was much more raggedy and punk rock and brutal um, compared to 
the melodic style that they have. But um, and again, that's yeah, kind of like was, adjusting your styles to you're coming into a band where they kind of have a defined sound. So yeah, you know, they had a defined sound, and also they're not um, necessarily and I think it's looking the, for like some yeah. an- anti folk song. <laughs> no, no, but um, I was really drawn to them too, also because uh, and this is something that you know it's not for everyone, but they have a really amazing sense of visual style. Like it's the only band I've ever been in where there is a true fashion agenda. And I respect that because I'm a student of fashion. (laughs) Like you'll get the call, like, this is what we're wearing tomorrow. I'm like, okay, let me get it together. Like the presence, the presentation, the video, everything is so well thought out and so executed. And that made it a different kind of experience playing wise. Um, For me, I feel like it made me a better musician because I just focused on playing um, sound, audio things, from like this kind of amp I'm going to use. Okay, I'm going to use these pedals for this song. Like I really got to fine tune all those things in working with the Chavis brothers. Yeah, I guess in terms of that uh, shoegaze, then you have to have just the right kind of effects for each particular song to kind of get that sort of wall of sound or whatever you're trying to do. Yeah, and I'll be honest too, like when they first were approaching me to play with them, I didn't really understand why I'm like, we already have two or three guitarists. Like, why do you need me? Like they could hear the place where I would fit in sonically. And when you're in the moment, you don't really understand what that is. Like, because I didn't write the music, but now that I've left, when I go to see them, I can hear where I was. Like I can hear the absence of what I was adding to it. (laughs) Although in the beginning I was like, Oh, I don't think you really need me. They're like, no, we really need this thing that you bring. So they have that gift of knowing um, what each person brings to the sound and how it fits in with their vision, which is cool. Cause I don't think a lot of people are comfortable being that direct with what they, they're just like, Oh, I just want to play. It's cool. Do whatever you want. They're like, no, this is what you're doing. So I respect that. Well, they're really kind of do. like, I think, you know, any kind of music, it's like you're cooking it. So you got to really kind of mm-hmm. get all the ingredients, right. So that it's balanced. It's not, the song isn't too salty, so to speak or whatever. Yeah, and just recognizing, like, whoever, like, I came in the band because Kirk joined the Roots. So I was like, I don't play like Kirk. I hope that's not what you're looking for because you're going to be disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) And there's no way I can even emulate what he does, you know. But they're like, but they'd seen me do other things. Like, they'd come to my, like, random experimental shows I did at Baby Jupiter or whatever. So they understood what I was doing. Um, See, another victim of the cabaret laws, too, Baby Jupiter. I know. I I could cry. I know. So many. But But um, I don't want to get you off track here. But anyways. uh, Yeah, yeah. But but I love the fact that, because I think in, it's not even I think, it's traditional that when there's a band that has a specific sound and different members switch in and out, the new member has to sound like the record or they have to sound like the previous person. So there's no distinction. Right. And I feel like with them they really don't put that on whoever comes into the project because Hayato and Alex are very different bass players as well. And now Hayato plays guitar. Um, When I play guitar, my style is very different. I don't sound like anyone else. The person coming behind me didn't imitate what I did either. So the consistency is the Chavis brothers. And then they basically, we're kind of like paint in their palette. Um, I don't know. I find it fascinating because it's not 
Well, the, you know, what's kind of cool, do. it sounds like they kind of have some flexibility in their sound, so they're not so rigid. They're they're willing to see, like, okay, well, we can bring this person in, they bring that style, and then we can kind of go in this direction as opposed to, well, you're not playing what's perfectly in our heads that the other person played, you know. So, And I think, you know, again, if you're working with individual people, you're playing with different people, then there is going to be a different sound, even if you're doing the same songs. True. There can be, but, um, but yeah, so that's my Apollo Heights experience. Um, so yeah, I mean, just talking about all these things, uh, it's to me very exciting to get to work with different people. I learn something from every project. Um, I feel, uh, happy and thankful that I have those outlets and also that people are open to what I bring because nothing is worse than, I mean, you've probably had this experience as well as a DJ when you get hired to do something and they tell you, you know, we want you, but then you get there and they want something else. <laughs> right. You're like, okay, how do I make this happen in real time? Like it's, it's a weird kind of head space to be in. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's as different a as, a, as a musician because as a DJ, I feel like just depending, like, you know, obviously I do events, so Mm-hmm. You know, I've done, you know, weddings, corporate events sometimes. I mean, a lot of times, you know, the music can actually be decent, but sometimes you get hired and that's the event. They, This is what they want to hear. They're paying you, you know, decent amount of money. Sure. So it's like, so, but I, I almost like don't, because I, I look at it as like, okay, I'm just doing that kind of thing. But I feel like if I was playing in a band and then I was kind of playing stuff that I didn't really like or feel or... I don't know. It would be different. I mean, maybe that's one of the reasons I never really pursued commercial radio. I've always done, mm. you know, like underground radio because it's like, okay, I'll do some of these commercial gigs, but I feel like if I had to do commercial radio, it would have to sound like I'm on cocaine and Red Bull, you know, like, hey, you know, <laughs> it's like, I just feel yeah. like I, I, would, I would kill myself. I don't know if I would like, you know. I mean, now I guess maybe there's some more like underground commercial outlets and internet radio, but I'm just saying like that general kind of commercial radio, I just am like, you know what? I'm never even going to try to do that because uh, I just don't see myself being happy, you know, but I can see that kind of bait and switch where you are kind of hired and you think it's going to be a certain kind of thing and then it isn't. And that is obviously always a little disappointing, you know? Yeah, it's just. You're just kind of like, oh, well, I guess I'll make this work. Um, (laughs) I mean, I only had it happen to me once as a DJ, which was the unfortunate thing is I literally was told to bring a certain type of music. I got there and the client wanted something totally different. (laughs) And it wasn't like I could phone it in. Um, Yeah, no, that's what's kind of handy about some of this stupid stuff like Serato, at least then you could kind of adjust. but. You know, I was kind of talking about that. I think one of the very first po- uh, interviews I did for this podcast with uh, Sake One and kind of talking about, you know, going to parties back in the day and you had your crate of records or whatever, and it might go in a different direction, you know, and you may not have had that kind mm-hmm. of style or very limited and just trying to make it work with the records you had, you know, mm-hmm. it's kind of like it's 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 definitely you know a puzzle piece you know when if you can make it work it's it's cool but it's definitely work you know so and especially Mm -hmm. just to create a record that's just the records you have obviously so you know but um but yeah tell me tell me so you've obviously been djing for a long time like 
how has that kind of like fed into your even approach to music or what kind of things do you like to DJ generally? Um, yeah. Um, when I first started DJing, I, my um, dogma was I only spun records that were made between 1979 and 1989. And it was mostly punk with some new wave and some electro, but that was the limit. But as, uh, you know, Supergen and I started to have our little residency at Botanica. South the Supergen. During the time when, uh, yeah, Supergen, hello, our TVOD party. Um, around that time, that's when I was getting really active in bands and doing festivals. And, you know, you get all these like crazy mixed CDs and samplers. And then I started looking around like, oh, nobody DJs local bands. Like the only person I knew that was really doing it was my friend Maya from... Um, the sister girls, she was doing her Monday nights at La Lina. And then on a commercial scale, the only person doing, giving any kind of props to New York bands was Tommy Sunshine. But, you know, he wasn't doing a lot of club gigs or not clubs I was going to. So, you know, I'd see him at like uh, the Mermaid Festival or something or Siren Fest. But um, I just felt like there's all this good music happening in New York that you can only hear maybe on a college radio station, but not ever in person. So I started filtering newer things into my set. And now I predominantly play um, underground and new bands mixed with punk and ska. That's pretty much what I mostly play now. So I'm really kind of thankful for the vinyl revival because I've been able to get a lot of new stuff on vinyl. Like I got the Muslims new, I got uh, the Black Tones from Seattle, um, pretty much any, if I go to shows, I just straight go and buy vinyl cause I know I'm going to DJ it. And that's been super fun. Nice. Nice. That's amazing. And then my band has vinyl. So that's been awesome. Like I was able to DJ the test press and DJ the belt and yeah, it's been, it's been really fun. I miss it a lot. Like I haven't DJed pretty much since the pandemic. I know so. it's so crazy. I, I, you know. I'm still DJing and I'm like wondering what, you know, <laughs> if it's even the right thing to do. Of course, I also have to make money. So it's, it's, yeah, oh no, they're kind of like I'm... really putting us not in a, in a good place. It really, I get so, I mean, you see me on social media, so, but I just get so, yeah. angry. I'm so angry at this world. I really am, you know, just so angry. It's just so ridiculous. It's such a con, yeah. you know, it's, it's so mixed up because there are ways we can do these things safely, but I feel like, you know, and it's, it's a tough thing. Like, I don't want to talk badly about venues, but everybody's trying to stay afloat. And, you know, every time we get the green light, Oh, okay, let's use the honor system and no one has to wear a mask and we're not going to check your access cards for me. Like I'm not taking that risk. Um, yeah, no, but I, mean, I know people got to survive, and I'm lucky, and that's a privilege, and it's a privilege I'm examining because I am fortunate. I can stay at home. I have ways to make enough money to survive right now, but I know that's not the case for everyone else. And people got to work. People have bills. You know, like we're all trying to stay afloat as we wait this out. But at the same time, I feel like at this point, we're two years in. We need uh, to just be as careful as we can. For the places that are trying to be open so yeah and i just you know, you know i mean i just think like 
obviously, you know, people, what do you, you see in media? Like, well, you just got to get facts and just wear a mask. It becomes this kind of individualism that kind of takes the institutions that should be taking care of this really off the hook. I mean, you look at other countries right. and it's like we've we've lost, you know, the amount of deaths in America in the last three days are the total amount of deaths in China for two years where they have, yeah. you know, what three four times the population as us it's like exactly there's just it just you know i mean for all the people that have lost loved ones that 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 they probably would still be here i mean it's just i don't know it's just crazy there's just so much bad like who is it like ram emmanuel's brother who is it ezekiel emmanuel he's and he's on the COVID task force of course for biden and he's like one of these guys I call him like a sort of Logan's run type of dude. He was like saying, well, you know, if you die after 75, you've lived a good life and blah, 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 Ugh. you know, like, and it's like, okay, well then on your 74th birthday, man, I think he, he might even be older than that, but he's getting there. Then, you know, I expect you to die because <laughs> you're right. ready, right? You lived a good life. I mean, just the obnoxious statements that you just get from these people when you know, you're faced with, like I said, close to a million deaths. It's it's just, it's hard not to be angry. I think people should be angry yeah. intrinsically. No. You know? Well, it doesn't mean you have to, like, you know, run around all day yelling. You know, you should still enjoy your life. But, uh, you know, I don't know. I just feel like it's a con. And uh, when people con me, it doesn't make me very happy. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's I feel like it's con. just gross negligence. Yeah. And it's, you know, like I do have friends who can't get back for whatever health reasons they have um i have asthma <laughs> and i'm older and i have my other things so like i'm not i just feel like whatever i've done so far i'm thankful it's worked i'm just going to keep doing it everybody has to make their own choice right now people are starting to be more understanding of other people's choices for ways they feel safe when we first started having access to the vaccine, that wasn't the case. And that was really frustrating. Like people telling you, just get over it, get back to work, do this, do that. And it's like, that's not for everyone. Everyone does not have that privilege just because they have the vaccine. We have to acknowledge that. And yeah, I mean, I think sometimes yeah. people are like, they do have this attitude like, oh, everyone's going to get it and it'll be mild. But, you know, first of all, it's like, no. it's not always mild for everyone. And, you know, if you're looking at the percentages, it's like, oh, well, it only is 0.0 whatever deaths. Well, if you factor that to everyone getting it, you're talking about millions of deaths. I mean, it's exactly like I said, you know, there was like this joke on Twitter kind of early on when people were talking about people are just going to have to die for the economy. And someone like made a joke was like the servants of Moloch, you know, like this, you know, just devil worship. It's like, yeah, yeah. you know, like who sell, who says like. Yeah, some people are just going to have to die for the economy. Freaking psychopaths. Right. Like, who gives a fuck? You know, right. people have to die so that, you know, your 16 Handles yogurt place will stay open. You know, it's just like, like some of the shit is just like, I don't know. No, it's nuts. I uh, definitely have been taking some social media breaks. Um, <laughs> and honestly, what I've been doing is, and everybody does what they do, but I've actually been picking up the phone and calling people and having like conversations and that's helping me mentally kind of ease into whatever this next phase of self quarantining is. But, um, yeah, it's, I don't fight with people online anymore. 
I block people much more frequently than I used to. Yeah, I just I, I the high block school. button comes in handy. It really does. The block because, button's amazing because it's, amazing. it's just like you know, it's sort of like trash people, but then you can actually delete them in a way, and it feels very satisfying. Yeah. Like you're not my friend, and it's like no. if you were my friend, you wouldn't be coming on the wall saying the shit that you do. So why are we quote unquote yeah. friends? In fact, why do you even have to see my wall? get you know right get off my lawn yeah <laughs> no it's it's uh it's it's anything to protect my my mental health exactly you know and a i lot think of trolls i will there. do it endless trolls the out troll there. thing is terrible um yeah there's just a lot of so, knuckleheads yeah. out there and it's just it's kind of you know it's just arrogant i don't think people understand how arrogant they are i mean even the concept of like concern trolling like i'm concerned about you because you seem a little it's like again you know, it's just there's so many different ways to kind of troll in a way, you know, so I just I'm kind of done with debate. You know, it's uh, my Facebook page is kind of I, I still look at social media as being intrinsically, you know, <clears throat> you know, just getting the information out there. I get a lot of information yeah. from Twitter. I mean, I know these sources themselves, like the people who run these companies are generally awful, like Jack from Twitter and Mark, Zuck, you know, Zuckerberg, like. These people are terrible. You know, there's lots of examples of, you know, Twitter and Facebook, Instagram, all kind of like colluding with the State Department to, you know, delete accounts they don't like and kind of like yeah, platform leftists them. and all kinds of shit. But at the right. same time, you know, you still kind of can use that system to push through information. And so that's why I kind of look at it. I think the thing with Facebook, because it's your sort of friends that or sort of cultivated from your life, whereas Twitter, you can just mm -hmm. follow anyone, is that then you have people that kind of know you. And so then there's this whole thing that's, it's Facebook is much more apt for people to comment on, say more right. than Twitter, or maybe Instagram, but like, so then it sort of invites, you know, especially when I started talking politics more, it kind of invited people that knew me for many years, but I maybe wasn't super close with and didn't like my political opinions to then, chime in because it's like if you post a nice photo people are going to be like nice shot so there's always kind of this you know oh well i can comment but it's like i don't think people understand that like most people don't want to debate you know and i think that's something that's been kind of coming out with social media over the years that it's mm -hmm. like yeah you know stop trying to debate people because <laughs> you right. wouldn't necessarily do that in real life i mean some people do do that they're no. kind of dicks no they wouldn't they would be mad silent because i've yeah. seen some of these fools in real life and yeah. they don't say anything right yeah it's yeah. uh it's interesting um i do have a lot of friends who are getting shadow banned right now yeah that's randomly. that's a that's a real thing too that's a real thing yeah. too they do that to a lot of like leftist activists you know yeah, I mean, I post a lot of political things, and now once a month, I just get kicked out of Facebook and have to log back in. And I'm like, this is mad annoying. And it's it's happening during a time when I'm really active and actually do really need to be posting things. Like, if I'm at a gig, I don't have time to log back in Facebook. Right. Now you've disrupted my live feed. Now you've disrupted me controlling my artist pages because you don't like something I shared. So. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, it's like there's a lot of really twisted shit, you know, they just use a lot of vague terminology like community standards, you know, and then right. they never have to define it because it's like, who's community? Also, nobody actually works there. So then 
It's right. like, you know, you can't complain to anyone. In fact, you yeah. know, the classic stuff, I've had a few things where you get into trouble, usually because the one of the worst things you can do on social media is, you know, say something bad about white people because that's right. definitely the kind of racism they're they're hyper aware of, like, you know. So it's like they're sometimes I'm down now. Yeah, so I've retweeted other you know, tweets that are jokes that I've copied and pasted in Facebook or even just put some commentary. See, now I have to, my friend kind of told me about this years ago, 2520, you know, which is like 25 is Y, y and 20 is T, you know, the letters in the alphabet. So it's mm-hmm. like these ways to kind of like type it so that you're not going to get banned for talking shit about white people, even though, you know, they right. definitely deserve it, you know. But that's the kind of stupid shit that will get you banned. Meanwhile, there's people who will make death threats that are freaking Nazis and they will not get banned yeah. on these platforms. So it's like, you know, and there's all kinds of like government, you know, people, former kind of like intelligence people that or the Atlantic Council is one of the advisors to Facebook. That's kind of like a NATO Western kind of think tank group. So, of course, yeah. you know, it's like. When you see like some of these Palestinian, you know, posts get deleted when they're documenting, say, a home getting demolished from Instagram because it goes against community standards to post about injustice. It's almost like if you were right. posting a, a march in the 60s with Martin Luther King and, you, you know, Instagram probably nowadays would probably flag it for community standards, you know, yep. something that would be probably a classic photo. So. It just shows you where the morals are with these people. They just they want to keep their little monopoly going. So of course they're going to bootlick when the U.S. government says, "Hey, you 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 want to keep your Facebook monopoly? Then you got to kick these accounts out." You know, of course they're going to do it. You know, right? So I mean, it's like there is some kind of poisonous aspects to social media for sure. But I also feel like, hey, I'm not going to let these trolls stop me from posting or saying what is right. You know. That's how I kind yeah. of look at it. You know, it's like, yeah, there is shitty people. And the nice thing is you just delete them. <laughs> like, it's like, it's like, a, I, I posted, what is it? There is like the Vincent Price 80s bug zapper commercial, you know? And he's like, like almost like, uh, you know, Dracula. And he's like, he's like, ooh, like all the bugs are getting zapped. But it's like, yeah, I'm like Vincent mm-hmm. Price with the bug zapper. Like, zap you bitches. <laughs> 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 Anyways, well, well, we've been talking for a while, so uh, I don't know if uh, anything else you wanted to mention or we didn't uh, circle on. Um, um, what are you going to put on this mix? I, oh, well, I definitely want to include music from the Sister Girls as well as other women who have influenced me to be a musician. So, nice. Yeah. Sounds great. And I feel like a lot of the, a lot of the songs that I'll have in my mix people really haven't heard before if they're not familiar with it or they haven't come to any of the sister girl riots or even if they haven't seen afropunk for instance they it's just like a way to kind of glue it all together nice well like i said you know it's really really nice to uh wrap it thanks for doing this honey child really appreciate yeah, it yeah yeah and um uh i did want to mention two more things okay yes please <laughs> um, there's no rush. yeah yeah so um there's a book coming out in I believe February March called Black Punk Now. It is curated by James Spooner mm-hmm. of Afropunk and Chris Terry, and I have a short story in it. So it's going to be my first published writing work. Very exciting. Nice. 
and it's going to be published by Soft Skull Press, who, if you're familiar, they're a pretty well-known DIY publishing company for poetry and stories and novels. Um, so I'm pretty psyched because I kind of just got back into writing this last year through my performance work. And then the 1865 has music coming up in a new three-part docuseries called Everything's Gonna Be All White. It is debuting on Friday, February 11th at 8 p.m. on Showtime. And this was created by my bandmate, Sasha Jenkins. Nice. So yeah, what, what, uh, what I've been working on while we're not doing live shows and things in person. Staying in motion. I know, right? You have to like keep yeah. moving. I feel like I'm just like, what am I doing every day? But uh, yeah, you just got to keep mm-hmm. moving. Got to keep moving. Yeah, we're staying. We're you know we're we're connecting with people and we're communicating. And I know like your show brings a lot of joy to people <laughs> more than you could know probably. Um, I try. And I think it's great that you that you are still doing all of this because it's easy to give up hope. Things are overwhelming. Oh, yeah, know, no, it's, it's definitely easy to give up hope. But the whole point is that's, yeah. you know, that's it doesn't seem like a very good life. So it's just worth fighting yeah. for the real shit. It's also just the right thing to do. I feel like, I don't know, the more and more I just learn about the history of America, especially our foreign interventions, it's just like, wow. It's just crazy just how much we've been lied to. You know, even the concept yeah. that, you know, you'll have... People in the West thinking, oh, North Koreans are so brainwashed. It's like that in itself is part of the brainwashing. It's like, wow, yep. we're the ones. It's crazy. It's just really We nuts. love to vilify other people and highlight what we're actually doing to our own citizens. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a distraction. Well, yeah, it's just it's, it's a, a media. It's a media thing. So. You know, they, they use media to basically try to put a message that is sort of what they push is what everyone is is thinking, you know, like we all want to go to war with, with China, Iran and Russia at the same time during a pandemic, you know, I mean, if you read the newspapers, that's what you would think people would want. (laughs) I don't want to go to war with Russia, but dot, dot, dot. It's like, give me a fucking break. Okay. You first, you know, why don't you get on the front lines? We'll see you in the Ukraine, you know? Go go out there and fight if you if you have enough like time to write a whole story about how people should start a war. Maybe you should be the first pe- person to uh, be out there. You know, exactly. Anyways, um, but uh, it was really good as always. And yeah, I hope uh, to see you guys soon. Safer times, you know. Yeah, out. thanks so much. This was super fun. Okay, and, um, cool. And uh, thank you for having me. You've been listening to Small Changes, Stark Reality on jasoncharles.net. To hear the exclusive Stark Reality playlist from Honeychild Coleman, go to episode 46 of Stark Reality and Stark Reality playlists on Apple Podcasts. jasoncharles.net Deep talk, deep sounds. That was so deep.